uh, my, my wife and I were talking last night and uh, I was kind of frustrated because every single time I come to preach, which is like once in a blue moon, uh, you, I always have something going on. So normally it's either the neighbors being super loud and uh, vibrating my windows with their music and I'm going to call the cops to get them to stop at 2 a.m., which we don't let it go that long anymore. Uh, or, or it's somebody getting sick. And uh, last night it was the, the latter of the two, somebody getting sick. So I didn't sleep well, nor did I do much else. So like you, I'm going to trust that the Lord has given uh, a good and abiding word for us today from uh, his, his word in Genesis. Uh, I'm going to reserve the joke for later. So faith, when I say that word, faith, what comes to your mind? How would you define faith? Where do you need faith? How do you get more faith? Is there a content or an object to your faith? Do you know how the Bible defines faith? Or maybe even a little deeper, does the content of faith change over time? I don't ask these, words, these things to, to make you feel like you may not know what faith is or anything like that, but I think these are relevant questions that you should be asking yourself when you think about things that we say. Well, I just have faith that God's going to make it work. His plans prevail. I have faith that it will continue to do so. What do you mean by that? What roots you in that saying that faith, my faith, gives me the strength to trust God more? What does that mean? I think when we look all over the Bible, you see stories of faith lived out, even from very imperfect people. I mean, think about Noah, not a good guy, but he was a righteous man, uh, according to God. Uh, Abraham did some really questionable things, but yet he was a righteous man. We read about his faith just a second ago. How about David, a righteous man, a man after God's own heart, or Daniel, or Joseph, or Jesus? Jesus is being the exception. He is perfect. Paul, who was formerly Saul, John. Do you see, like, the Bible is full of characters who have lived out their faith in front of us. But their faith is not blind. Their faith is based on something that they know about God. Their faith is built up and built upon, not just saying that God has saved me, not that saying that God is in covenant with me, but knowing the God of that covenant, knowing the God of that salvation. And just like us today, we should be building our faith, building up ourselves in the faith, Building one another up in the faith based on not false promises, not what we think would be the right thing to say in the right time when someone's going through a rough time, but on the promises of God that he has given to us. Joseph is a perfect example of faith. Now, I've been going through Joseph the last couple times I preached. I kept took a, took a break there in the middle and I haven't talked about Joseph since October, and some of you may forget that we're in the middle of this. And I, I'm sorry, but um, I'm not going to recap right now, but I am going to recap as we go, because Genesis 41 is full 
of, may, of, of opportunities to remember the good works of God for Joseph's life. It's a great opportunity for us to see how Joseph, despite his circumstances, is still living in light of God's promises, walking faithfully according to them. So if you were turning your Bibles to Genesis 41, I'm going to spend about a minute per verse. And if you're really paying attention, you'll see that there's 57 of them. So it's not going to be Psalm 119 long, but maybe 57 minutes long. I'm joking. I, I, could, I couldn't do just 57 minutes. It would probably be three hours anyway. So what we're going to do is we're going to come into the scriptures and we're going to come out of the scriptures and we're going to kind of jump through and see what God is saying through Genesis 41. But I want us to start by remembering this truth about God that we are supposed to see from Genesis 41. We're not supposed to see that dreams are a thing that we should use to discern God's will. We're not to see any of the uh, just worldly things that you see within like pragmatism and making good choices. Those are good things. Don't, don't mishear me. But we are supposed to see, first and foremost, that we are to entrust ourselves to God's wise and good providence. We are to entrust ourselves to God's wise and good providence. See, we are to do this first and foremost because that's how and what we should be building our faith upon. That's what keeps the structure of our faith together, right? Understanding God. Now, now you can't understand him all the way, granted. But understanding parts of God, particularly in this case, knowing that his plans are perfect, knowing that his providence, how he works in time, how his sovereignty is enacted in time, how it is for his, his glory and your good. So, as we turn to Genesis 41, I'm going to read the first 16 verses to give us some context. So read with me. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other, cloud, the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for them all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, 
And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Let us pray. Father, your wisdom is vast. It is immeasurable. And your goodness, your goodness, Lord, is the same. Your goodness is so great that we might just be saved, even though we were not anything but enemies before you. Lord, I pray that you would direct our eyes and our hearts towards Christ, that you would make us more dependent on him and on his spirit so that we might live a faithful life according to your will. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we look at verse 1, verse 1 is quite important for the setup of this entire 57 verses. It says, after two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. After what? After two whole years of what is the question. See, Joseph's world had been consumed with the suffering and hopeless situations. His brothers threw him into the pit 11 years before he was, these two years came about. He was sold into Egyptian slavery, imprisoned unjustly, and forgotten by the one he gave hope to just a verse before. Chapter 40, verse 23, says this, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him for two years. And this is very typical to our, like, human, uh, our humanity. Right? We, we, as tries we hard to remember important things and important details, we usually make dates or you know, set a calendar reminder or something like that for birthdays. For instance, I cannot get my wife's birthday and my brother's birthday apart for whatever reason jared was born and i'm gonna mess it up on the 26th correctly yes and beth was born on the 27th of the same year so i'm like it's, it's you see how it's confusing for me i keep thinking jared was born on the 25th and her on the 26th it doesn't matter i can't even remember what no, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I keep remembering that Jared was born on the 25th. I know that he was born on the 26th. Like, I can't even keep those things straight in my head. It's very confusing. That's how my brain works. So try as hard as we, we might. We can't even remember. I can't remember confession. Even easy things like birthdays. We forget good information and good and beautiful memories. But rarely does our forgetfulness affect somebody's well-being. Usually when we are entrusted with calling 911 because someone is choking, we don't forget to call 911. We do it, right? Um, if we have somebody that we know in prison, we don't forget them in prison. We go and see them, right? But the cupbearer forgot Joseph. So for two years, he was left in prison. Two years of accomplishing the same set of mundane tasks. Two years of dealing with the lowest of low within Egyptian society. But for two years, Joseph faithfully worked in his mundane, dead-end job. And he did it 
with fullness of understanding that God was in complete control of even that. So while we see and know how the story ends, we must remember that Joseph experienced isolation and desperation and rejection in real time. My uh, youngest boy is just now one in like four months, one in five months, something like that. That's giving me the eye. Can't even remember that. One, one in four months. And so he's not yet two. He's not yet two. But for two years, Joseph was doing the same thing over and over. For two years, he thought he was forgotten. Two years, isolated. And it would be completely understandable to see Joseph act out of bitterness, right? Oh, he forgot. Man, that guy, that cupbearer, what a jerk. Maybe worse things to say. But that's not what we see. We see that the bitterness that had the opportunity to grow for 11 years and then root itself firmly in those in that last two years in his heart did not affect him in his actions. And well, granted, let's, let's be real, he was a man. So he probably wrestled with bitterness, wrestled with the temptation to hold others accountable for what they have not or done, have done to him. But it is not evident in the text that Joseph did anything but be faithful. And I think that's what Moses wants us to see. Because how quickly do we find ourselves seeking to remove ourselves from an uncomfortable situation? Think about it. How quickly do we find the opportunity to transfer fault that we may have to others? When we should absolutely be taking responsible for the actions that we made or for asking God for the patience and the wisdom to understand what he's putting us through. But Joseph waited for two uncertain years before God caused Pharaoh to have disturbing nightmares. Disturbing nightmares that caused Pharaoh to do exactly what we would do, right? Hey, I need an answer for this now. So I grab my phone and I pull out Google and say, what does this mean? Except for he has wise men and magicians. There's not much difference here, right? Except for Google can't transla translate nor interpret your dreams. Sorry. And neither could these magicians. See, just like Pharaoh, we try to seek comfort in the midst of silence and stillness. I bet money you can't even go two minutes right now, and I'm not going to make you do it. Two minutes without saying a thing, without looking at your phone, without reading anything, but just two minutes with your thoughts without wondering, okay, how do I get out of this situation? Now, you may not do it consciously, but we all have that instinct. Even I do. Where's my phone? You know, that, that instinct. See, we're always looking for escape from the things that God brings us, even though it's there and meant to teach us something, whether about ourselves or about Him. But these two years were, in fact... God's good plan for Joseph. And it was part of his wise providence. Why, might you ask? How can two years of being forgotten be a great thing? How can it be a good thing? How can it be a part of the wisdom of God? Because while the chief cupbearer forgot him, left him to rot, God was preserving him. God was molding him. God was teaching him to trust him more. 
God held him fast not only as his child within the covenant, but held him for a purpose, which was to glorify himself by keeping Joseph within reach of Egypt's throne. He could have removed him from Egypt's throne, but then who's going to be there? Remember the story to organize all the grain storehouses so that Egypt and all the earth might be saved. Who, how is it going to work? Is he going to come with his brothers to Egypt just to find that they're suffering too? No, God was keeping him and preserving him for the right time. And we're supposed to learn from this to trust God's wise providence. Trust God's wise providence. That was just verse 1. Verse 2 through 24 is our next section. When we look closely at Pharaoh's dreams, both when he first experiences the dreams and then he retells them to Joseph, we see some really disturbing things. And they may not be disturbing to you initially, but I, I want to look at them really quickly. First of all, the content of the dream is disturbing, the raw content. Think about it. Pharaoh looks upon the great source of life for Egypt, and out of it comes both good and evil, blessing and curse, cows, right? And then thin, ugly cows that eat them up. Blighted or good, good grain heads and blighted grain, head, grain heads. The Nile that feeds the livestock and nourishes its wheat and grain also yields the horrid, ug evil and ugly thin cows and blighted grain that swallows up the good, their good counterparts. See, Egypt's economy, just in the raw information, is being threatened. And there seems to be no remedy for the emptiness that Pharaoh sees to come. He doesn't even understand the dream. So, like, do you see the problem? Like, even if he had an interpretation, he wouldn't even have a hope. But not only is the raw content of the dream disturbing, but also the larger picture of what's happening is disturbing. The Nile, the cows, the grain, they're all symbols for Egypt's strength and welfare. The east wind, this east wind, is uncontrollable. The blight, the thin, the ugliness of the cows is uncontrollable, and yet it is completely consuming of the goodness that he sees. Not merely but because of the economic threat, but also because if this dream were to come to pass, it would mean one of two things. Egypt's gods were angry, or Egypt's gods were not there at all. Both are death sentences for Egypt. The symbolism of the dream is an indictment on Pharaoh and his status as a god before men. And all of the other gods of Egypt, they cannot control the weather. They cannot control the food supply. They cannot control the river that sustains them. The symbols of life for Egypt were turned completely on their heads. This should remind you of something to come in, the, in Exodus. But Pharaoh is not, and not the same Pharaoh. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Naturally, Pharaoh woke up upset. And he required answers regarding his dreams. And there was none that could be given. Notice in verse 8 and 24, he makes this absolute statement. There were none, there were none, literally not anyone who could interpret them to Pharaoh. He found himself in as much isolation as the chief cupbearer and the baker while in prison. Now that's pretty daunting. The king of Egypt, the, the god of Egypt, feeling exactly like the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. 
in the previous chapter. He, no one existed in Pharaoh's court or in the priesthood, which means the magicians and the wise men, from verse 8, who could give him a satisfactory answer to his painful dreams. And desperate and without any other recourse, he hears from the cupbearer a smidgen, a just glint of hope about a young Hebrew. The cupbearer humbly steps forward. He recounts his experience before he was released from prison. And he emphasizes um, that the young Hebrew had correctly interpreted their separate dreams. Now, young Hebrew, this is not exactly a, what you would call a good nickname or a, a good reference. It's actually demeaning. It shows that the cupbearer actually didn't think much of Joseph. He used him, used him for hope. And that is, um, we have to be very wary of that. But, um, but he correctly interpreted their separate dreams. And he states this absolutely. He says, giving them an interpretation so it came about, verses 12 and 13. Joseph's success rate was 100% in his eyes. But he had more than luck. He had God. And he had two witnesses to the truthfulness of God and to his skill. Two witnesses that influenced Pharaoh so much that he goes, go get that man. Go get Joseph. Go get that young Hebrew. See, God gave Pharaoh an unsolvable nightmare to cause the cupbearer to remember the good Joseph had done for him. And also to cause Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to acknowledge God's, the true and living God's, infinite wisdom. He needed something that he did not know. And yet, he was going to use a prisoner to show a great king what he should know. Verse 14 then tells us that Pharaoh immediately sent and called Joseph. If you look back to verse 8, he says he sent and called for the magicians. And then here, verse 14, he says sent and called Joseph. So we're seeing this like spiritual battle happening. Joseph, a Hebrew of no repute versus the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Again, Exodus should just be ringing in your ears. This is almost the same thing with Moses in Pharaoh's court. And just as similarly, in both instances, God exalts himself in that foreign kingdom through this know-nothing Hebrew. After Pharaoh calls Joseph and he's standing before the court, Pharaoh tells him, hey, I hear you can interpret uninterpreted dreams, uninterpretable dreams. Joseph replies with this profound statement. It is not in me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer. Some of your Bibles will say favorable answer. Some of them will say concerning his welfare. Some will say um, an answer concerning Pharaoh. These are all saying the same thing. That this isn't like a, uh, Joseph's not promising something he can't deliver. Uh, as in, this is going to be a blessing to you, Pharaoh. This is a an answer according to his problem, according to his need. After Pharaoh calls him and he says this, it would be tempting to believe that Joseph, if he were consumed by bitterness, would try to exalt himself to get out of prison, right? Because he's still a prisoner. Think about this, still a prisoner. He's coming to the court, talking to the king. A lesser man might have taken the opportunity to exalt himself, to grant himself more prominence. However, he immediately points from himself to the skill 
and his skill to God and his omniscience and his grace. Joseph humbly asserts the power and sovereignty of Yahweh over this God king, this guy who thinks that he's king and all of his court. God's wise providence, he carried Joseph from the pit, from the prison, all the way to the throne room of the most powerful man alive to exalt himself and to glorify his name in a pagan court. God's wise providence caused the cupbearer and the baker to have dreams that only Joseph, God's representative, could interpret it. God's wise providence caused Pharaoh to experience inexplicable nightmares that only Joseph could interpret. God's wise providence continued to place his child in the right place at the right time to glorify his name and to bless pagan nations. To bless pagan nations. It's teaching us to trust God's wise providence. Trust God's wise providence. See, the only way that we can really learn to trust his providence, trust what he's doing, trust what he's leading us to do, is to actually know what he did in the past. We need a basis for that faith that we have in God and his providence. We have to have a content, a foundation. And it's not merely by saying Jesus is Lord that we have that confidence, but by learning who Jesus is, by bringing ourselves in deeper communion with him. That's why we believe in our women's gatherings once a month. That's why we believe in having these 6 a.m., yes, 6 a.m. men's gatherings, reading systematic theology together. Because we want to know who God is. We want to spur one another up to love and good works. But we cannot do that if we don't know who are we to love and what are we supposed to do. We cannot do any of these things if we do not know who God is and who he is asking us to do, to be. But how do we come to this? It's not by mere reading the Bible. I will say that if you read your Bible, you will be driven to do this next thing. But I know a lot of pagan uh, instructors that I had in college who know their Bible better than I do. And I can say honestly that they are absolute pagans. They are not out for God nor his will. But it's not mere Bible intake. Bible intake is absolutely the first step. But we, should ought, we ought to continuously meditate on the record of God's wise providence by meditating on his word and what he has done in the past. Joseph gives us this opportunity to meditate on God's providential hand, to meditate on how God has moved Joseph from the, uh, from the favored son to the pit and back to being the favored son that we're going to see. God's good providence is the one who uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God's good providence, God's wise providence is what we should trust. But in reality, like Pharaoh, we are too quick to seek escape from our discomfort to actually ask God, what are you doing right now? And what have you done? What promises might I rely on? And when that doesn't work, we work out, we usually transfer the blame from ourselves who tried to seek a way out to others. We are, and we, this, this problem is just endemic to humanity. I mean, think about all the things that Abraham went through. And one of them is he came to Egypt and he encountered Pharaoh. What did he do with his wife? 
He said, she's my sister. Right? But what happened? What happened? He was found out. This is not your sister. This is your wife. Well, see, this is the pattern of life in the Bible. When we forget who God is, we end up doing foolish things. When we forget the pattern of what God has set up and God's wise providence, we tend to take our eyes off the Lord, forget all he's done, and start wandering astray like sheep without shepherds. Like the cupbearer, we also tend to forget God's good works when we don't meditate on them. However, unlike Pharaoh, we have a good word that we can continually go to. We have a good word that we can find and discern and know who God is by just reading and meditating on it. By being with people to meditate on it together, to understand what God is saying. You can't do it on your own, but you can be with others and they can help you. They can help you to discern God's will by doing just mere meditation on what God has said. God has said. Not meditation in a pagan sense, by the way. Think about what the world says meditation is. Empty your minds. That's not what God's saying. He's saying, fill up your minds and hearts with what he has done so you do not forget what he is going to do no matter what you are going through. So what are you meditating on today? Number one, what are you meditating on today? Are you meditating on the, the, the dreams that you have, the plans that you may have at one time that God, we would hope that God would fulfill? Are you meditating on what you haven't gotten, what you don't have? Are you meditating on God's living and abiding word? There's only one option if you want to have life. And as to live according to his will, which is found in his word. See, how can you count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? Because if you didn't meditate on the, world, the Lord and his works and what he has done and who he is, you would not know that your faith would be built up and become steadfast, lacking in nothing. Does that make sense to you? Don't know the Lord, don't have any assurance. Don't know the Lord, don't have any convictions to live by. Don't know the Lord, don't understand his providence. But here we are being called to trust God's wise providence. It's not only wise, I've said it a couple of times, but it's also good. So therefore, trust God's good providence. See, verses 25 and 30 through 36 is where I'm going to kind of be in the next section. It says, after Joseph hears Pharaoh's dreams, he immediately states that the two dreams have the same meaning. And he explains it fairly well. But the dreams are not the point. The dreams are not the point. Hear me again. The dreams are not the point. I know a lot of studies, and you start looking up Joseph and the dreams that he has. People write books and books and books about these dreams. Here's the problem is God is already giving you an interpretation about them. They are pretty easy to discern. Read the words. But the point is bracketed in verse 25 and 28. He says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. 
In verse 28, he says, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The point is that Joseph exalts Yahweh, the creator of all things, before the God of Egypt, the center of power in Egypt. Yahweh does what what neither Pharaoh nor his court nor their gods could do. He sets the pieces of time and place and foretells the future to a king who does not know him, but forces him to acknowledge his glory. This is just a straight on flex on Pharaoh. He demonstrates to Pharaoh his dependence on Yahweh, his inferiority to Yahweh through his streams. And because Pharaoh has no answers and he can't even get the interpretation, he now understands as Pharaoh, as Joseph has given him the interpretation that he has no control. There is no control over his present nor his future. Joseph delivers this interpretation to Pharaoh and exalts Yahweh. And what I want us to look very closely at one particular verse, which I did not mark in my notes. Particularly in verse 30 and 31. It says this, but after after seven years of great plenty, there will be seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the, by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. I want you to catch this. Yes, he's saying that the famine is going to be so bad that nothing will grow. Yes, he is saying that the famine is going to be so bad that there will be no hope of actually trying to grow anything. However, he's saying in a very roundabout way to Pharaoh and to us, that even in our plenty, when trials come, we have a tendency to fear. When trials come, we have a tendency to forget what God has done because we do not meditate on it day and night, like Psalm 1 says. We find ourselves wanting more because we do not understand what God has done in the past. He's playing off this, the, the idea of back in uh, Genesis 40, 23, that the cupbearer forgot him even though the cupbearer had done all the, you know, had seen God's work and the interpretation that he was given. See, Pharaoh could not be in control and he had no recourse. He had no understanding of how to fix it. It was going to be so bad that he himself was going to forget the plenty. The people were going to forget the plenty that they had. It's the abundance, the overwhelming grain, the overwhelming provision of God because of the famine to come. But he doesn't just show him that forgetfulness has consequences. He details the extent of the blessing and the trial to come, but he stresses Yahweh's sovereignty over it. He says, verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Our God's plans are as unchangeable as God is. Also, those plans cannot, they they will begin quickly and thus demand to be addressed. God's going to bring about what he says he's going to bring about and nobody can thwart it. Nothing you can do can change it. Yahweh reveals himself to to, to Pharaoh, a changeable man, as unchangeable God, immutable in all his ways. 
one that cannot be swayed when it comes to his plans, his decrees, or anything about him. And we see this all over the Bible. It's not just here, it's everywhere. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. He just says it. Um, James 1.17, James says, there is no variation or shadow due to change in God. Psalm, Psalm 33.11, Psalm 110.4, Isaiah 46.10, 1 Samuel 5.19, Hebrews 6.17. If you're trying to write all those down, don't. Just look it up. Uh, uh, immutability and God and verses, it'll tell you. And many other places in scripture. It's over and over and over explained that God does not change so that you and I might be able to be built up in the faith. This is a good thing. This is a good thing in which we need to place our trust and that Pharaoh was being forced to acknowledge. See, there's a guy named Turretin, a systematic theologian. He explains why God is immutable and I think why he's unchangeable. He says it this way, God is immutable because he is from himself and recognizes no cause above himself. Do you understand? He does not need anything and therefore cannot change. He does not have anybody above him, so they are not forcing their will upon him. He is immutable. Augustine says it from, from a negative aspect. He says, whatsoever is changed from the better for the worse, or from the worse to the better, is not God. Because God's perfect virtue can neither change for the better, nor true eternity, timelessness, um, being apart from everything else, for the worse. So for one to change, they must move from one position or state to another. And they, that change must come from an outside source greater than themselves. It also implies that they are dependent on those things on other things. And let's be honest, we are all of these things. We are all of these things. We are dependent. We are needy. We have a higher authority over top of us. But our God is none of these aspects. And Joseph knows it. And now Pharaoh knows it. God's good providence should give us the assurance and comfort and supreme confidence that God will be faithful to his promises and his plans no matter what we are seeing. Whenever he says that those he saves are his delight, that means that his delight will not waver in his, the ones he saves. Or when he promises to keep our souls safe till glory, he means that you cannot by your will nor anyone else's escape his grasp. He will hold you fast. This is assurance for things hoped for. Conviction for things unseen. Hebrews 11, 1 is so helpful here. So helpful here. We're seeing that verse lived out in front of us in chapter 41 of Genesis. And when we come to verse 33 to 45, we must remember to trust God's good providence. It's good and it's wise. But in 33 to 45, we're going to see the solution that is given. We're going to see the exaltation of the servant, the faithful servant. See, Joseph's prophetic solution and his exaltation in a foreign court is all because of God's good providence. It's a solution that presents, yeah, presents to Pharaoh a sure course of action with not really any downside. And it is not self-exalting for Joseph. 
He says, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt, verse 33. And Joseph wisely emphasizes the gathering of the wealth in the form of a food tax in the, the time of this abundance. And the proceeds that will compound when the people come to buy the food will just add icing to the cake. Because when you get to the end of in, in chapter 56 and 57, or chapter verses 56 and 57, you see not only did they have grain that was immeasurable, but they made money off of the grain from the people that grew it. So this is not actually a bad deal for Pharaoh in either way, right? He's concerned with the welfare of his people, of course, but he's also concerned with himself. And Joseph wisely appeals to Pharaoh's felt need. But it doesn't just appeal to Pharaoh, it appeals to his whole court. And we see this, that nobody is in his court that could give him an interpretation, and Joseph set it up so much in his speech that, hey, I'm that wise guy. Like, not in a bad way. But he's the wise man, the faithful man of God that was going to lead them. He says, Kim, uh, Pharaoh says in verse 38, can we find a man like this in whom the, the spirit of God, it might just say divine spirit in your version. And this is, you know, a, a blatant rhetorical question. We don't have anybody. We don't have anybody. You are that guy. You are the man. And so he calls Joseph to be that man. And he says, since God has shown you all of this, verse 39 through 40, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house and all my people shall order themselves at your command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. This is exactly what Pharaoh or what Potiphar says to him in his house when he, when he was a servant, a slave in Potiphar's house. This is the same kind of language that we see in the prison. Um, when he's placed in charge of the prison. See, Joseph is placed one time after another as the one responsible for all that is in the house because he is a discerning and wise man who knows the living and true God, the, the one living true God. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, and let's be careful, it's a proverb, because proverbs are not promises, but they are based on the wisdom of God. So the wisdom of God says in Proverbs 29, 22, 29 says that a skillful man, a faithful man will stand before kings, but not obscure men. This is exactly what's happening. Joseph is this skillful man. And Pharaoh is forced to acknowledge all the wisdom and understanding that Joseph imbibes because God has shown him everything that is needed and necessary to save his people. Pharaoh then follows the pattern of a divine decree that Yahweh did. Remember that two witnesses thing? I don't know if you understand how truth works in the, in the ancient, work, ancient world, but in Deuteronomy it says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the truth will be discerned, particularly when something sinful has happened. But they take it also as truth when two or three witnesses are, are come to them. And so Pharaoh twice states that, that Joseph would be responsible over the land of Egypt, verse 41 and verse 44. And just so everybody's not confused about who Joseph is, he gives him three things. The signet ring of authority. The clothes of, the, of royalty. And the golden chain of honor. He cannot walk around with anybody mistaking who Joseph is now. He was an obscure man in the pit who did not have anything 
and now he is Pharaoh's right hand. What good providence. What good providence. See, as Joseph interpreted, again, so it came about. Even more reasons that we should trust God's good providence. Now, before we get to what happens, we read in verse 46 that Joseph is 30 years old when he entered Pharaoh's service. And in the time of entering, between the time of entering the Pharaoh's service and the famine, we see that he has two children by the wife that Pharaoh gave him, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh, you, you can read it for yourself. It's uh, verse 51. J Joseph gives this interpretation of his name. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Now, do you think that Joseph had forgotten anything about what had happened? No. But the blessing that God had provided to that point was so overwhelming that he could forget. He could not hold it. He didn't have to hold it against them anymore. He knew that God's blessing was greater. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Jeremiah is going to pick up on this language later on in Jeremiah 29, 4-7. And he's going to say to the exiles who are going in Babylon, you marry, seek the prosperity of the city that you are in. Even while exiled, Joseph understands God's good providence has led him to fruitfulness and a place of death. What an amazing providence. See, even in the midst of having children and storing up this grain and storing up the stores so that he might, uh, of grain, that he might be able to bless the nations, we hear this verse, and I want to direct your attention to verse 49. It says, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Moses is doing something really cool here. Not just cool and like the, ooh, yeah, but, but cool as in it should bring to mind the promises that he was made, that, he, that God made to Abraham. God he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses two to three. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And in all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's carrying out that promise through Joseph. In Genesis 15, 5 to 6, he plays on this and says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. The, the point being, they are uncountable. Genesis 22, 17 to 18, Abraham is provided with a ram in the place of Isaac. And he says, I, sh I surely will bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. The same same exact phrase, and on your offspring shall possess, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Is that not what's happening with Joseph? He's possessing all of Egypt, except for the throne. And he shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Over and over and over, this blessing does not go to Abraham and stay there. But it's for a purpose. 
It does not go to Isaac and stay there. It's for a purpose. It does not go to Jacob and stay there. It's for a purpose. What purpose is it right now in Genesis? That all of the earth might find salvation from the famine to come. All come to him. All go to, to Egypt and to Joseph to buy grain. The weak things of the world are constantly being used to shame the wise. The low things of the world are constantly being used to dominate the strong. And when we realize that God is continuously and consciously in control of all things, our faith will grow in the Lord. The content of our faith will continue to be bolstered when we trust God's good providence. As we close, doesn't all this just sound really familiar? I mean, Joseph is 30 when he entered Pharaoh's service. Christ was 30 when he entered into his ministry. Joseph was a slave, but yet he saved his master. He was rejected, and he was able to save important and prominent men. This is just how God works. He continuously uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1, 25-29, when speaking about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of man. He says this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose what is foolish in the world, the cross, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, Paul is talking about Christ. He's talking about cross, about the cross and the folly of Christ's death on that cross. From a worldly perspective, it was weak. It showed frailty. But God used it to shame the wise. He used it to defeat death and Satan. He used it to break the pattern of forgetfulness and faithlessness. For God was completely faithful to Christ. Christ was completely faithful to God. Uh, Christ was also exalted. Much like jo Joseph, he was despised and rejected by his, by his brothers. Handed to a foreign power. Died the death of a prisoner only to rise the third day. After conquering the pit of death. Asserting his reign and supremacy over the whole world. It is through the wisdom of God's good providence that we build our faith. Only by Christ can we have the full assurance of faith. Only by his name and by his grace that we have a trustworthy content of faith. Only by his good and wise providence have we been saved, are being saved, and will be finally saved in the end. All glory be to Christ my King where God's grace speaks and sings. All glory be to God, my King, whose providence reigns supreme. Entrust yourself to this God. Entrust yourself to God's good and wise providence, for he alone reigns supreme over creation. Let's pray.